Welcome to Cyber Insecurity, brought to you by INE. Uh, I'm Matt Kreischer, content specialist at INE, and as always, I'm joined by Neil Bridges and Jeff Goals. Uh, Neil is a cybersecurity veteran, uh, both of the Air Force and several Fortune 100 companies. He has also worked with PricewaterhouseCooper and is now consulting through his company, Root Access Protection. Jeff is a named account manager with VMware Carbon Black. He has more than 30 years experience in the technology and cybersecurity sectors, helping clients around the world achieve first-class security protocols. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to try to get to four topics today, but uh, Jeff and Neil have such strong opinions on our first subject that we'll see how far along we actually get. Um, what I'm talking about is threat intelligence. An article from Dark Reading uh, looked at six different threat intelligence sites, four open source and two that required a paid subscription, and found that the information collected rarely matched from site to site. So what you end up with is a scenario where the current threat landscape looks wildly different depending on where you're receiving your information. Uh, for cybersecurity and personnel and researchers, uh, access to up-to-date threat landscape is critical to how they do their jobs and where they divert resources. Now, there are two aspects of this that I know Jeff and Neil want to get to. One is whether or not it's healthy for the cybersecurity profession to have access to the same threat intel. And the other is whether or not that intel should be open source and therefore th uh, free. Neil, I, I know you're chopping at the bit to answer these questions. So, Jeff, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> He's getting good at this, isn't he? No, the, the, the thing is, is that Neil and I have had this conversation for years now. Literally yeah, and years. Literally years. And you know, the, the value of threat intelligence to a security professional, I believe, is something that is high enough that should be paid for. And... Uh, I don't want to speak for you, but um, the idea that you think that it should be free is just a head scratcher. It always wow. has been. Wow. Wow. You just, you just, gonna go I did just speak for you, didn't I? Shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> look, look, I, I don't, I don't think we, I think to, to Matt's original question, right, which is the, the, the article at hand with the dark reading one, right, is, is threat intelligence um, has been such an oversold commodity. Um, by money hungry vendors, the entire time <laughs> that I've been in the cybersecurity landscape, there was no positioning there. Money hungry vendors, nice. Thank you. Is, Which one is, of us I mean, is in sales? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the um, you know, there now in in fairness, right? In fairness to the article, it is completely understandable that different threat intelligence sources have different threat intelligence results. Um, so long as that intelligence ultimately enriches, you know, the, 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 the strategic objectives of the threat intelligence team or of the cybersecurity team. That's the whole reason why it's important to have multiple different threat intelligence sources enriching your platform. And that's where I get into kind of the other part of the money hungry threat intelligence vendors that are out there, which is they all think that they do the best job and that they're the only threat intelligence source you have. Hence the reason why an article like this can prove that two different paid threat intelligence vendors and the open source ones have different information because no singular piece of threat intelligence, you know, you know, vendor can solve every threat intelligence need. And this gets back to the point that you and I disagree with is that 
with how much threat intelligence that exists out there and how much threat intelligence that's free. And if you were to break this down into a Fortune 50, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 bucket, unless you're in the Fortune 50 bucket or even the Fortune 100 bucket, you can literally build a threat intelligence program that does 80 to 90% of what it is that you needed to do with open source intelligence. And at that level, it should be free. And every vendor that's out there that's selling threat intelligence literally brings no value to the career field. Mic drop, leave the podcast. So you just, you gave... 90%, which I, I, I know you just pulled that number out of thin air, but <laughs> that just means that 75% are false. <laughs> that, that just means that 10% is open, right? Yeah. No, no, 90%, you, when, 90% no, no, that, is open, 10% is paid for. Uh, all I'm saying is that if you think that there is threat intelligence that is good and threat intelligence that is bad, and let's just say you use. Uh, it across the board, right, from eight different sources. And those eight different sources are all very different, but collectively, everyone that you add to the list gets you closer to a complete view of the threat landscape. Would you agree with that statement? No, because I don't think threat intelligence gives you a view to the threat landscape. It doesn't give you, you're not going to be able to pay for the number of threat intelligence inputs you have does not directly correlate to a complete percentage of the threat landscape. Oh, I, would, I would agree with that. And a, a lot of that is because a lot of the threat intelligence that out, is out there isn't really threat intelligence as it uh, overlaps with a company's uh, viewed threats that they will end up getting. Because it, company A, right, and financial services is going to have a very different threat landscape than company B that, that is in medical, right? And same with someone else in some other industry. Each one has a very different threat landscape. So a threat intelligence feed or feeds that they determine over time that collectively gives them the closest view possible up front to what is good and what is bad out there will help them. Here's the problem. Would you agree with that statement? No, I'm not going to agree with that statement. Here's the reason. <laughs> I won't give you any parts of this uh, <laughs> argument, Jeff. <laughs> no, because here's the thing, right? Threat intelligence is part of a threat program, right? Let's go back to it. Pro people, process, and technology, right? It is having a strategy that allows you to determine the strategic, operational, and tactical level intelligence that you need to satisfy the priority intelligence requirements of the business units that you're supporting inside of your organization. And a singular threat intelligence feed only fits a small requirement in the tactical level intelligence of the, of the requirements of the incident response team that you're looking to service. I don't disagree with that. I understand that. So as a result of that, your threat intelligence feeds that are available by, via open source all use commonly available data points and, and things that there are tons of open source free researchers out there that are publicizing on a free basis day in and day out and can, to this article's point, literally get you to 90% service serviceability on threat intelligence without having to pay a single dime for other than the people it takes to maintain it. Cool. So that you, you've still got a 10% gap. And that that's like saying that's like saying that, you know, I've got 90 percent visibility in my sim, but, you know, I've got to have 
you know, I, I've literally got to, you know, I've, I have to achieve 100%. You and I know that 100% is not possible in cybersecurity. Right. But is 91% better than 90? So, it, But 91% yeah. is worth $350,000 a year. Well, let, it, me, let me redirect this conversation and, and ask a question why? real quick. <laughs> <laughs> because we're going to go down a rabbit hole. I, <laughs> let me ask this because I do think this kind of points to an interesting question, which is, you know, there are, are two sides of cybersecurity, the people protecting companies and the people that are going after companies. Now, that is obviously a simplistic way of looking at it. But my question to you is, who do you think has more open communication, the people that are going that are protecting net networks or the people that are attacking them? People that are attacking easily. So do you think that it's be because oftentimes we commodify some of this information that on the on the dark web or on other on on criminal forums is free is that is there a, is that possible I, I i think i think i like where your head is at the the thing that i would tweak is is in in the attacker realm you pay for access you don't pay for information on the capitalist side you're paying for information. That's where I think we're failing. If you look at ISACs, right? Even getting somebody to participate in an ISAC is a cost to benefit analysis, right? Your lawyers and your cyber insurance and your marketing folks are going to be like, well, it cost us potentially somebody knowing that we had a hack and therefore you can't go sit in that ISAC and share information in an ISAC fashion. So information sharing um, organizations like FS ISAC, Energy ISAC, you know, you know, health ISAC, things like healthcare ISAC, things like that are meant to be so that you can, oh, shoot, I'm seeing this IOC, this indicator of compromise. Hey, everybody else, look at this, because if we got hit by it, you might get hit by it, too. Well, That's isn't that a, the exact point that I'm trying to make that paid for threat intelligence doesn't have that limitation? The open source, hey, we're going to just share because we went through this wait a minute, our lawyers just said we can't share. So scratch that. We can't share. Sorry. Um, so you're going to probably get hit with the same thing we got hit because I'm unwilling to share. Whereas no, if I paid, bought a threat intelligence, intelligence doesn't have anything to do with that. Well, it, it, it all feeds up into it. No, that, that doesn't mean that like if, if I get hit at company A, I'm going to call insert threat intelligence vendor up here and say, hey, be on the lookout for this malware. That's not no, how that no, works. but uh, I I understand. But you've got FSISAC, for instance, right? It's a culmination of what groups in those uh, 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 companies in that group sees, right? Yeah, and they share that amongst the group and outside of the group, correct? Not outside the group, but yes, inside the group. Well, if you subscribe to FSISAC, you are uh, receiving that. Yeah, but at least when I was in FSISAC, you had to prove that you were in a financial services role, and that was the only way that they subscribed to the FSISAC. Okay, so uh, kind of irrelevant to to my point. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, th the whole point is that if you are precluded from sharing because you can't let anyone know that there was even a possibility of a breach, um lest you be subject to GDPR uh, fines or whatever fines, um, you know, you're not going to be helping those in your group because you're not sharing, right? But a paid threat feed 
doesn't give you access if I'm a peer company to that information either. No, no, absolutely not. But uh, you are counting on that threat intelligence feed provider to maybe find one or two of those things that the FSISAC could have found themselves just experientially. If I, were but, to, if I were to entertain this even in a small capacity, what I would say is that, you know, the ISACs prove as a forum for the big companies that have paid for threat intelligence that have actually seen actionable intelligence on their network to share with peers that this actionable intelligence is a definitive confidence level of these threat indicators that you're seeing in your free sources. All right. So rubber meets the road here, right? Because at the end of the day, people listening to this want to understand if it makes sense to pay for threat intelligence or not pay for threat intelligence, right? I think that that's a fair question. And my answer will probably shock you because I'm not going to say no. I know that. Well, that <laughs> this, is, this is the funny part of our conversation <laughs> over the last several years is like you and I just flat out disagree with it, but yet well, you it, still it, would say, no, wait, but I would still pay for it. Well, but here's the thing is it, it's a cost benefit analysis, right? It takes it takes a person time to go figure out, you know, a, you know, Alien Vault, you know, OTX, you know, recorded future or no threat connect community edition, um, MISP, um, Shodan, Virus Total, you know, even if you were to pay the virus total subscription, you know, the 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 small, you know, enterprise virus total subscription, right? Even if you were to set up your own open source. And for those who are wanting, go out there and check the Hive, right? It's a GitHub project called the Hive, H-I-V-E. You know, they've got a, a module inside the Hive called Cortex, where you can put in the API keys for all of these open source threat intelligence vendors, the ones that I just mentioned, and then some. And you can pull in basically your own threat intelligence into a tip. I know I've done this. I've built my own tip, and this is what I've used. And that will get you, and if you've got, it's got a Splunk plugin, and you can basically plug Splunk into that, and you can get a fully functioning sim that takes indicators and correlates them against threat intelligence without having to pay for over $300,000 for somebody like a Threat Connect or Anomaly or Recorder Future, you know, or Threat Quotient or whoever else that's out there, and name all the vendors that you know right, to to do that stuff for you. But if you're a Fortune 100 company and you've got headcount cost and, you know, it's it's expensive to go find a threat engineer, you know, or somebody who can dedicate and sit around and do threat analysis, it's going to take time. If you if it takes you six months to stand up a server in a in a ESXi environment because you got swear jar, crappy, you know, IT processes, then yeah, it's, it is cheaper for you and quicker to, to action for you to pay a threat intelligence vendor to do it. But just be realistic that you're not getting anything, you're not getting any value at cell phone. Well, as I said at the beginning of the subject, this was going to take up almost the large majority of it. And it also sounds like, Jeff, you want to respond. I just think that uh, uh, I know for a fact that you have bought threat feeds yeah. and you continue to support buying threat feeds. Yes. So they have value. No. <laughs> no, no. In fact, I often find zero value in the things I spend money on. Really? And, and, and Andy might have to edit this out. Never mind. I'm not going to say this one. I'm not going to say this one. <laughs> there's, a, there's a difference between paying for something out of convenience versus finding the value in the data that you get. 
I don't find value in the data that I get out of the paid threat intelligence feeds any more than threat intelligence feeds that are open source available. I pay for convenience. As long so as there's no, value in convenience. No, the article and the original premise of the conversation was about the quality of the content, not the convenience. That's semantics, and you oh know my it. God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that we need to uh, move on, or our editor, whose his name is actually Adam, um, will probably just hey, get... <laughs> Adam, Andy, <laughs> Bored Nick, to tears. I know I'm going to get ubiquitously bleaked out of all these, uh, all these podcasts. <laughs> uh, so I, I do want to um, move on to Oracle and Salesforce. So I... Uh, both of them are facing a, a possible GDPR lawsuit. Uh, the lawsuit was brought by the Privacy Collective, which is a privacy advocacy group. Uh, the, the group claims that both organizations collected your user data without expressly asking for permission, then turned around and sold that data to other companies without the user's knowledge, all within the EU. Uh, if if found guilty, and that is a big if, uh, each company could face up to $10 billion in fines. Uh, Neil, we've talked about how toothless you, know, you <laughs> see the American regulatory structure as being, um, especially when dealing with cyber breaches and privacy. How do you see these cases as different? How do you see them playing out? I, I think that these so again, the the only difference here that I would just caution right is this is a a third party group that's suing these companies based on their interpretation of violations of the GDPR regulation. It's not the actual European Union imposing a significant fine. Um, you know, which if you look at like you know what happened to Marriott, what happened to British Airways, that was the European Union, you know, I- imposing themselves on on those organizations. So I, I think to your to your cynical point before Matt, right? Let's Let's wait and see how the, the the lawsuit pans out. But if, um, if if my fear, right, with any type of lawsuit like this, is that lends itself to a settlement, and then we still start to to neuter the 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 teeth that GDPR had with implementing a fifteen percent penalty on on revenue, which for these companies could end up being billions of dollars. So I'm still cynical about it, just because of the method in which it's it's coming to play. Um, you know, I'm hoping it works out well, but we've talked about this before and, and Jeff and I, you know, you know, I think Jeff's more. We, we actually agree on this one way more. Yeah, but I think, you're, I think you're more cynical about it than I am, you know, as hard as that is to believe, because I just I, I I don't have any faith in the in in this as a system to, to force these penalties. But I still don't think 15 percent is enough. I just think that uh, until there is a history of consistent fines for consistent activity it's going to be really hard to get people to buy into yeah we if we have a breach and we give up x number of records this will be our fine and we can count on that there's none of that so far it's a little bit wild wild west on what gets uh, you know the attention of gdpr and what the fines are going to be uh, uh, levied against those. So and, until until that gets more defined, I think it's really going to be difficult for 
you know, any of these companies to say, hey, we need to spend more on cyber insurance or we need to spend more on protecting ourselves, data at rest, data in transit, because X, Y, Z, right? And what I'll say is that this case is a little bit different than a cyber breach because the Privacy Collective is accusing uh, both companies of selling data intentionally. So this mm-hmm. is this doesn't have anything to do right. with the breach, but the, so... And what I will say about GDPR, but it, and, it is dependent on the same underlying language. Sure. You're exactly right. And what I will say about the EU in general and, and GDPR is is the regulatory body is still young, and there is still time for that body to mature. Um, the EU is taking much stronger stances on monopolization of technology, and when you look at what they're doing with Google and Facebook, they're not the early decisions haven't been necessarily that effective in curbing some of um you know technology monopolies more insidious aspects but there is that framework and they are building it and and I do think that you know while all three of us may be a little bit cynical about this case there <laughs> is an interesting argument to be made that they are building a structure that could evolve and grow well so I'm going to I'm going to stir the cynicism hot a little bit on this one right because <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, because we were lacking. Because <laughs> we were lacking. I mean, look, here's here's you know, and, and I don't know, Jeff. I don't know if I, I'm not going to speak for you on this one, but I can tell that at least the the people that I circled with, you know, in the 12 months prior to GDPR going live, right? We were all like, yes, this is going to be awesome. Yes, we believe so much in this. This is going to transform our industry so much. And as just in the 12 months leading up to GDPR, as you saw consulting firm after consulting firm come in, lawyer after lawyer come in, you know, compliance officer after compliance officer come in and and strip away the interpretations of the controls inside of GDPR up until the day that GDPR, like, quote unquote, went live you know, at least from the people that I talked to who were hopeful of that 12 months prior, they looked at it on implementation day and went like, well, yeah, technically they're GDPR compliant, but God, it literally did nothing to actually improve the security posture of most of those organizations. And so while you say that, like, you know, European Union is being progressive in their stance on anti-monopolization and in the case of GDPR, data privacy and consumer rights and things like that, I think that I think that they have lost the initiative of having a more steel trap version of their policy and we're just going to continue to see the the erosion of the interpretation of those guidelines to the point to where you know it's going to be as useless as pci yeah where it doesn't mean anything yeah right yeah and there's certainly a question of the the way a law or a, a regulatory body looks on day one is not how it looks on year two or year 10 and i think that we're kind of at a point where that we're at a crossroad to where, you know, GDPR could, you know, more government intervention could come in and GDPR could grow stronger and the opposite could happen, that it beca- it becomes weaker and weaker as more technology companies get their, you know, say in how these regulatory, regulatory bodies work. Neil, to kind of push back on your cynicism a little bit, I do think that, it's still too early to tell where that that fork is, what, what path that GDPR is going to take when they come to that fork, when they have to make that decision. And those decisions do happen gradually. It's not really an aha moment. But I, I do think that at least, you know, the, the very beginnings of it is, I mean, Oracle and Salesforce would not even come close to this kind of court case in the United States. But they are being held to account whether they will, you know, 
be let be found guilty or whether they they actually have to pay is another question but you know we do have to look this look at this as the baby steps of a maturing governing body i, yeah, I would, but it's, I, a, it's a maturing governing body with a very very big stick so i i, I kind of have this uh, vision uh, as you were talking about hey the you know it's in their infancy yeah but it, it's like handing a uh, a baby uh you know, like a can of gasoline and a match like should we give the baby that big of a match and a tank of gas Mm, probably not how about we define what uh (laughs) what that weapon should be in this case fines from gdpr and then build out the framework of when that fine should be used and when it should not be used because right now it's only evolving through the court system that's the only way that these fines are evolving and, and being defined. With, my fear with the with the court system, right? And I'm not a lawyer, and I didn't play one on TV, and I don't didn't sing a Holiday Inn last night. But if we use the infancy argument and we allow more of these court cases to get stripped away, stripped away, stripped away, we set it. We set a a precedence for previous cases in the court. Exactly. System that that people just say, well, in this case, here's the scenario that you gave, and so therefore we're justified by only being charged five percent instead of fifteen percent. That's that's why I, yeah, and they're just nibbling away like piranhas at what the end uh, goal of this regulation was supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. yeah, but there's nothing to say that EU officials can't go, come back to the GDPR and through legislation make it stronger. You know, as a reaction right. to that, right. you know, piranical look at things. I, I I don't necessarily disagree with that. I I think that uh, uh, you know, retroactively we'll have 2020. Uh, a vision as to how this is going to lay out. I would be sh- uh, very shocked and surprised if uh, in five years it is not way less uh, problematic for companies than the belief it was two years ago. Because right now it's already way less of a threat to them than it was two years ago. I mean, two years ago, this was 85% of my sales cycles included GDPR conversations. Mm-hmm. Ask me how many have GDPR conversations now. And it's a it, tiny bit of the conversation. And I'd probably say it's the same repeat scenario with CCPA too, right? Right. Exactly. I think, I, think, I, I think that sums it up very well, honestly. I think that sums up the cynicism very well. I was about to say, well, it, it sounds like in the short term, cynicism is is ruling the day, at least with the three of us. But hopefully, we'll uh, we'll be proven wrong. Um, we're we're going to have some lawyers listening to this saying, "Man, you guys are just so negative on what we do." Here's, here's what I'd say. Here's what I'd say. If we if if there is a lawyer that wants to come on this podcast and be a fourth with us when we have one of these GDPR or CCPA conversations, I would welcome that because I'd love to hear if there's a lawyer that's as cynical as us three information security folks. It probably depends on what side of the uh, what side. Of the court I, I would on. agree with that, and and actually, I think you know, honestly, their job is to find loopholes and you know make sure that their client is being treated fairly. But I think that that is the crux of the issue: is that term "fairly" is an evolving thing because no one has defined what fair actually is. But GDPR is supposed to be the people's lawyer, right? If we were to analogize it like that. And I don't think that GDPR is is fighting the same dirty fight that Oracle's lawyers are going to fight to ensure that they're representing the people's data privacy, you know, in, in the fair way. 
So you actually want an Oracle lawyer on the podcast. Or, or a Halliburton <laughs> lawyer. I mean, your dirty lawyer. Well, let's, let's move away from, uh, as Neil calls them, dirty lawyers, and uh, <laughs> move on to domain security. Uh, the domain security provider, CSC, published a report on uh, the domain security of companies on the Forbes Global 2000 list. Uh, they found that 83% of Global 2000 companies did not have basic domain security protocols that could leave them, which could leave them open to attacks like DNS hijacking. The report went on to say that 53% of um, major companies use retail grade registrars and 97% do not have DNS SEC, which means most companies leave themselves open, vulnerable to cash poisoning attacks. Jeff, the report was created by a domain security provider. So there is shocker. It's not exactly an objective <laughs> look at this, but how serious do you think this research is? Well, well I, know, uh, I know you, I know you just asked Jeff that question, but I have to intervene here and just answer for Jeff and say like, of course it's going to be pretty <laughs> because it's not paid for. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, honestly, I have been a huge proponent of uh, DNS security and you know, what, what's comical is how few companies actually really look at DNS as a vulnerable way of uh, uh, avoiding threats, right? You know, if, if they, um, if they took a look at what you can exfiltrate over DNS, they would be shocked. Um, I, I worked at a, a company a few years ago um, called Infoblox DNS, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were known for, for DNS and DNS security. Great company. Um, still love them to this day. And we would do these uh, DNS analyses for customers. We would walk in and say, hey, let's just take a look at uh, a DNS packet capture, and we will tell you what is actually going through your firewalls right now. Because, by the way, port 53 is open all the time. And what was really, really super interesting is we were at a technology company. I won't give the details of it. But um, we started giving IP addresses of devices that were exfiltrating data. And he's, the, all of a sudden, the guy got a little ashen-faced, and uh, he, he looked at us and said, that's our CEO's printer. What is our CEO's printer doing with DNS queries? And, oh, by the way, it's sending out 2,000 queries a minute, i.e., who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? 2,000 times, which makes no sense, right? And that's kind of what we were selling at the time is this idea that, if something doesn't make sense on the DNS side, probably should not allow it because it's probably malicious behavior. And we showed them how much could be done just on the CEO's printer because they weren't doing anything to protect it. But the reality is DNS is such a huge uh, threat vector. And I'm a little passionate about this. Sorry. Um, but uh, <laughs> DNS is such a huge threat vector and people don't seem to care about it. I don't. Uh, it's a head scratcher. I don't understand why. I, I I couldn't agree in a tangential way, so as I'm not agreeing directly with you, um, fashion. <laughs> um, that, was are, close, that was a close one, Neil. You, you, you almost head. accidentally agreed with me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm agreeing with the with the with the stratosphere around you. Okay. Um, 
No, I, I do think that organizations take DNS for granted, right? It's been something that's been a part of the internet for 20 plus years. You know, you know, I think it's, I think if you were to, if you were to talk to most, most people who aren't intimately familiar with DNS, like, like, like you and I are, Jeff is, you know, it's, it's as synonymous, synonymous as ping, like who cares what, so what? Yeah. It's, it's cool to, you know, to, to have DNS and, you know, let's, let's invite DNS to the party, you know, sort of thing. I, I, it's not shocking, right? The, the the findings of a report like this in terms of just how much bad stuff can come out of DNS. I mean, we had similar, you know, conversations with folks when it came to the pen testing side when we were trying to evade, you know, IDSs and IPSs, you know, at the boundary, right? From a pen testing side, we'd use port fifty three, you know, because it's 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 you know unencrypted and and allows yeah, you know open. traffic in and out. Yeah, from <laughs> an organization, we would we would do tons of exfiltration in pen test reports over 53 because it's, it's ubiquitously allowed. So, you know, I, I, I think, I think enterprises, I think, I, I don't want to speak for every CISO. I think people hear DNS and just think it's operationally required, but don't think about the, the sheer volume of, potential attacks and things that can go wrong from a DNS perspective, whether it's data security, data privacy, whether it's, um, you know, you know, misconfigurations from a zone transfer perspective, whether it's DNS amplification attacks, you know, from through misconfigurations. Um, I, I don't think that people are, I, I would even say that most pen testing organizations aren't actively trying to exploit DNS. And that part of that is because if you do try to actively exploit DNS, you could literally bring down an entire company from <laughs> oops. Yeah, exactly. From from, mis- we, from we we just switched from a, a pen test to a um, <clears throat> penetration ruining your network. <laughs> yeah, so so I I definitely agree that that organizations aren't taking DNS seriously. So is it a question of cost? Because I I did part of this study said that only twenty percent of these companies use enterprise level uh, DNS. So is it just is that jumping cost that big or is it just a, a back burner? This is, we'll think about this later type thing. I think it's more the latter than it is the former. I mean, I think with, with open DNS from Cisco and to Jeff's point, Infoblocks and companies like that, that are out there, they're helping them. Even if you use Zscaler, you know, and you're, you're routing all your DNS entries through Zscaler, right? You've got enough, you know, third-party solutions to help you um, that, that do piggyback on, you know, an adequate amount of security features that, you know, it should be relatively cost effective for you to, you know, not use enterprise architecture. If you do use enterprise architecture, it is pretty expensive, especially to set up like split DNS configurations and, and things like that. But I just don't think that, I, I don't think that DNS is the number one topic at the table whenever security folks and IT folks get together, especially if you look at um, the CIS top 20. Right. Or um, like CIS top 20, you know, there's only a handful of controls that really talk about whether DNS is is important or not or what are you doing from a DNS perspective. I I just don't think it's the number one thing that's at the the top of mind whenever practitioners get to sit at the table. I totally agree with that. And even the meetings I was having back then, uh, you had to show them what was actually happening Mm -hmm. before they even started paying any attention to it and and it's a and it's a it's a you know even i would even say that is a bag of tricks from from a uh 
proof of concept perspective, because you, if you're dealing with some of this advanced malware that is only beginning back, you know, once a month or once every three weeks or something like that, the day that you look at that DNS traffic, you could find nothing out there. The day, the day or the hour that you're looking at that DNS traffic, you could find nothing there because it's not like it's not like you can leave it on for for a month and get anything less than 100 terabytes worth of data that you've got to sift through. You know, so you've you've you know, you've got to do I can, I can I've been part of organizations that didn't realize how big of a DNS problem they had. To your point, Jeff, you did it by inspecting network traffic. You know, in this particular organization, they had to set up a DNS sinkhole for some common malware, you know, for them to understand, you know, what they potentially had inside of their environment from that sinkhole perspective. Yeah. And even a lot of the malware that we see uh, in my current role uh, leverages DNS. Yeah. For that, uh, you know, pinging back to command and control servers. Hey, do it over DNS. They'll never see it. And they'll never see it. It'll look like normal network traffic. Yep. Well, it sounds like you know, if you haven't thought about DNS yet, if this hasn't scared you, we're not quite sure what will. I, um, I, you pick up the phone, call somebody, call Jeff or I. We'll talk to you about DNS. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put you in contact with people way smarter than me. But you can, <laughs> but you can call Neil directly if you'd like. <laughs> who, who actually, who, who actually, you know, don't pay for threat intelligence. <laughs> whatever <laughs> all right well because we're going to go down this threat intelligence rabbit hole if i don't change the, the subject <laughs> again <laughs> again um so sc magazine reported that small to medium-sized businesses are facing new threats as ransomware as a service becomes more sophisticated and cheaper to execute uh, what doesn't help is that low-level attackers are now implementing the same stealth and uh, steal and publish tactics that maze and other more advanced ransomware attackers are using to entice companies to pay ransoms. According to the article, inexperienced attackers with little or no knowledge of coding on on or even hacking need to only to sign up with a, an RAS provider for a service that includes just about everything a would-be hacker needs to launch a financial financially motivated attack. Neil, small and medium-sized businesses do not have the money or personnel oftentimes to manage a new boom in ransomware attacks, and many small organizations are even farming their IT services out to third-party providers. Do you think we'll see more and more attacks on businesses crippled as criminal organizations make their services cheaper and, I mean, more dummy-proof? Short answer, yeah. I think there's a I think there's a much longer answer to this and and you know you're just a couple of statistics to throw out there right two two big ones that I want to kind of highlight right is and just heard this one before we've talked about this right is sixty you know small businesses are sixty seven percent more likely to be a victim of a cyber attack than large organizations and so that means that if you're if you're running a vet clinic in North Carolina. Right, barely putting out you know ten million dollars a a year in revenue, you're sixty seven percent more likely to get hit by a cyber attack than Target, right? And 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 so I don't think small businesses really understand just how big of a target. I guess I messed up that pun there on that one. Is 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 on their back from a cyber <laughs> cyber attack perspective. The other one is what makes these attacks so easy you kind of glossed over it a little bit in in recapping the article matt is this idea that these ransomware as a service providers are literally using affiliate style techniques with you know other cyber criminals to propagate the use of their malware and and in that affiliate style you know model let's say that i'm the malware creator because i'm clearly smarter than youtube bozos um 
you know, I create a, a piece of ransomware and then I basically give I just it to use you ransomware guys. as a service website, I, Neil. Exactly. You just come to me. I and don't you're create like, it. Neil, I need Neil's cool ransomware. And I'm like, cool, here's my cool ransomware. You're just going to give me 40% of all of the ransoms that you collect. You're still making more money than me, you know, on a per transaction basis. And all you really have to do is just go out there and install it on, you know, a bunch of computers. Like it's literally that easy for. But you're, you're not the one that's indicted criminally. Exactly. For making a weapon. I'm, I'm the one that's I'm, I'm indicted because I used it. I'm literally distancing myself from a risk perspective because they're going to catch you before they catch yeah, me. Yeah, 40% is so is like easy money for you. It's easy money. And, and all I did was just create a piece of software. So I think I, I think what what I would say to that, right, is that small businesses first need to be aware of that that as these cyber criminals create these types of models, mm-hmm. I would say that 67% more likely to be attacked. I think that's actually going to go up much, much higher because – with with the the core cyber criminals distancing themselves from a risk perspective, these smaller cyber criminals are going to realize that the smaller businesses are less likely to be able to 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 Jeff's point prosecute them, and they can hit a thousand of them and still make money versus you know a Target or a, you know a Canon or a Jack Daniels or something. Yeah, well, like this that. is this is exactly the same conversation about a gun versus someone who commits a crime with a gun, right? Yeah. Like, you're are you going to take Smith and Wesson to court? You can try, but that's going to be really difficult. Right. You're like, oh, I was just writing computer programming. I don't know, whatever. It's just like, it's what I do. Oh, this one happened to be bad? Oh, and someone used it maliciously? Oh, shoot. I'm so sorry. Right? Like, How are you going to have any kind of malicious understanding as a premeditation to a crime? You know, all I have to say is I actually wish I was the person that came with the came up with the AAS trademark because it just seems like like ransomware as a service really now now we're categorizing this next there's going to be like a Gartner magic quadrant for ransomware as a service I, I, can well, I, I read a, an article on devices as a service the other day everything <laughs> is like everything well I, we I, have I do, to start using Greek alphabet here soon I, I, I do think <laughs> I do think Jeff if you if you want to own that trademark I'd be more than happy to give you the trademark of an ass <laughs> but <Ba-da-bum. laughs> so <laughs> to, to get us a little bit back on topic, um, what do you, yeah, small I businesses are <laughs> right? Small businesses are you know sixty seven percent chance of them being attacked, but they don't really have the money or the resources, like access to cybersecurity personnel in this job market to really do anything about it. So, so what do you tell these small businesses? I disagree. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think I think we've created. No, they need. S A A S security as a service, right, Neil? <laughs> I I I think that what we so you what, need your security ass. <laughs> this one is so bad. There's so much editing going in. There. I really thought I was going to be able to get us back on topic. <laughs> no, that's the first myth that we have to get everybody away from is that cybersecurity is not unaffordable for small to medium businesses. There, we we won't get into it on this because this is not a giant you know market. Don't pay for the threat intelligence feed though. You don't. You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. But you probably don't need a threat intelligence. No. So, feed okay. So a, a small business comes to you, Neil, and says, "All right, I don't have a big budget. What do I do?" So give me your top three things as a small business that you would do as a security as a service to help them ha- improve their security without paying too much. Turn multi-factor authentication on literally everything you have. 
if it deals with money, deals with email, deals with billing, deals with, I don't care if you log into it, enable multi-factor authentication. It's literally a half a second additional time to log into that application. And literally, it will save you so much headache from having your passwords compromised. Yeah. Um, So the number of uh, breaches or security incidents that you have with MFA on versus without MFA on, it's bigger than order of magnitude. It's what? Like you cut out 98%? Yeah, Verizon Data Breach Report reports on it every year that that multi-factor authentication literally cuts down on attacks by close to 100%. And let me here's here's a secret. Hold on. Don't tell Jeff this because he might try to put a price tag on it. MFA is free. Call me if you want to buy it though. <laughs> <laughs> like there you go. You don't your, I just saved you from having your Google Mail uh, because you're using your Gmail for your business. I just saved you from having your Gmail, uh, you know, hacked because you put turn multi-factor authentication on. You can send me $2000 a month if you really want to pay somebody something. But there you go. It didn't cost you a single thing. That single thing will save every small business out there from having their their email hacked through through password credentials. It'll save them from having their bank account through password credentials. There you go. Okay, so that's one. Give me a second. Well, God, you know, now that I've stopped 98% of the attack, God, where do I go from here? <laughs> um, you know, you know, I think from here, right, literally from here, it's back to Internet 101. Don't click on stupid links in your email. Like, you know, if you, I mean, this is just like, you know, security awareness 101 yeah. is. Go to the bank and find the fraud yeah. uh, link on your bank that you already check into just naturally. Yeah. Don't go yeah. in via email. Don't click on a single thing that's in your email. I don't care how good. I don't care if they're offering to buy your business for $4 billion, right? Don't click on a single link that's in your email. It's not worth the the hassle to but just- it's $4 billion, Neil. I, understand I could use that. that money. I understand that, but it's not $4 billion if it's fake <laughs> or if you get hacked and lose the money that you've got that makes you valuable as a company. No, right? I, I think that, that that's brilliant advice. I mean, th- those are two free things, right? Right. It doesn't so, cost you a single thing. Okay. And then have a have a good have a good endpoint protection answer. Right? If you've got McAfee, as much as it pains me to say that, if you got Symantec, if you got Malwarebytes, you know, you know, I would love Carbon to see black. Well, but here's the thing, and, and I was gonna follow up with that is I would love to see the NGAV players and I, you and I have had talked this you and I have yeah, talked to I know. before. I've talked I've literally talked to every single one of my you know, advanced EDR friends that you pretend I don't have, you know, in, in all the other vendors, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, I think that there's a missed opportunity to, to protect the consumers with the great work that you guys are doing on the NGAV side. And so I, I would love to see the expansion of NGAV to the consumer side. Neil, I don't want to speak for Jeff, but I think that he meant that, you know, you're not having friends. <laughs> no, I would never say that. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff is the only friend that I have and pretend to keep. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does we, sound like we, we still have dinner and uh, drinks after this, uh, so we're good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it does sound like there are free and inexpensive options for small and medium sized businesses. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the reality is what you just mentioned is really, really, really cheap and covers off 99.9% of the attacks you would see. So don't click on stupid emails. I would also add to Neil's point of go to the fraud link that you would normally go to with Google the phone number of the company that you think is, is emailing you and call that number instead of the number in the email. Just 
or if it, if it, if you if somebody calls pretending to be your bank, pull out your bank card and look at the back of that bank card and call that number. Yes. If 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 somebody is calling you, here we go. We're going to do more free advice. <laughs> if somebody is calling you, claiming to be I'm, I'm sending support, this uh, this one to my parents. By yeah, the way, yeah. If somebody calls <laughs> claiming to be tech support, don't answer. Don't tell them. Tell them your computer's fine. Tell them your computer's fine. No security practitioner. Tell them you don't or, own a computer. Tell them you don't own a computer. Tell them you believe in the abacus still for all your data processing, <laughs> right? You know, call you know, call your cousin, call your friends, call 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 me, call Jeff. Like one of us probably know more about what's going on with your computer than some random person who's calling you out of the blue, telling you that you've got malware on your computer. I promise you, it's not happening. The Social Security Administration will never call you and tell you that the cops are coming to your house being arrested, and the IRS isn't going to call you on the phone and tell you that they're coming to the house to arrest you. It's all fake. Don't do it. It just practice skepticism. It's that's it's as simple as that. Just be skeptical with strangers. Don't don't trust strangers on the on the web, folks. Just we're don't not, trust. We're not, we're not strangers. You can trust us. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say we are on the web now, right? Okay. <laughs> Except for the three of us, don't trust strangers online. Well, <laughs> on that note. That's our show this week. Uh, if you want to check out uh, more episodes, check out the eLearn Security or uh, INE YouTube pages or check out our podcasts uh, on the INE Expert Network, wherever you get your podcasts. Gentlemen, thanks, and I'll, uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt.